Hello. Hi. What would you like to have a conversation about? I'd like to have a conversation about Ex Machina. Hello, I am Professor Robert E.G. Black, and this is Minutia Ex Machina. With me today is Tyler Boudreaux from Wildcat Minutes. Welcome. Howdy. How you doing? I'm doing good. Now, you haven't been on this show before, so I'll ask up front, when did you first see Ex Machina? I first saw Ex Machina a couple, a few years ago. I don't remember. Certainly no earlier than 2014 or 2013 when it came out. Right. But probably sometime when I was It'd in college. It'd be if you saw it before that, though. <laughs> it didn't leave the biggest impression on me. I, You know, it was weird because 2013 and 2014 was kind of like a beautiful time for independent movies like this. Yep. I was just thinking about the 2014 movie Frank, which also stars Donald Gleason. And that was around the time when I was like 16 and I was like getting into films. <laughs> and so a lot of the movies from that time are like was when I started hearing about these like more independent yeah. or like award winning festival circuit movies. And Axe Machina was definitely one of those that I was like, every time I'm listening to a podcast, it comes up. I got to watch it. And then I watched <laughs> it once and I thought it was really good. And then I just watched it last week to get more prepped for your show. And I thought this is incredibly well made, although I. I'm curious, as our conversation goes, I don't think it's as philosophical a movie as it might, like, as it gets talked about. I'm not sure, though. I think there's a mainstream audience that has seen this, and they will see it as a very, like, philosophical, very thought-provoking and everything. I think if you watch a lot of movies like this, or indie movies, this came out from, you know, A24, if you watch A24 movies, it might not feel as much that, yeah. I get that. Oh, I just also just wanted to say philosophical, like the groundhog Phil, but that'll come back <laughs> later. Yeah. You're, and, and I get that a lot. I recently saw the new David Cronenberg film oh, crimes of the, the future. future yeah. and, <laughs> I, and I go to the independent movie theater regularly at this point. And I was like, you know, that movie, it wasn't weird enough. It wasn't fucked up enough. I want, I like, I was expecting more. Right. From what I'd heard, I thought it would be more. <laughs> I, I really liked it. And I thought it had something to say, but I, I think it got bogged down in its own, like shocking some of the audience. I wasn't shocked by it though. Yeah. <laughs> like I wasn't that shocked. I mostly just liked Vigo Mortensen like vibrating in a chair. To me, that was the most <laughs> effective thing in the movie. It was just like him trying to eat breakfast. Yeah. And then when I was watching Nope, I was like, this is the proper amount of fucked up. I haven't seen that one yet. So <laughs> you'll have to let me know. I, I still not, don't go to theaters very much yet. Okay. But anyway, I'm breaking your format. What should we talk about? Oh, we'll talk about what we talk about. <laughs> but we are in minute 28 of Ex Machina. We're in session two with Ava. After showing her drawing to Caleb, she has gotten up and walked away. I would have to argue with your wording there. I think you've probably talked about it. We're in session two with Caleb. Yes. <laughs> Even more so than uh, the first one. Yeah, this is her. He's stuck on a chair in a little tiny vestibule and she gets to walk around and control his perspective very much so this session is when she showed him a drawing yes okay they all blur together in my brain but definitely the main thing i wanted to talk about in ex machina especially on the rewatch was viewing it from a lens of ava has all of the agency and of course nathan has all of the agency too and you can really see how caleb is the one all of his actions are influenced and produced from an outside source. He's a cog in a machine. He's just yeah. doing what is expected of him until later on when he breaks out a little bit. 
Like you can really tell that he is the independent variable that like is not being changed. Like he is part of the experiment and Ava is the one taking action upon him. Yeah. I think at this point in this conversation, it feels like she still doesn't quite understand why he's there, but she knows something is up because this new person has shown up and wants to talk to her and she's feeling him out. And in this minute, she outright asked some questions about himself. You said it's a session with Caleb. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the Benjamin Franklin effect? Uh, I'm not sure. It goes up by this name, but it goes by other names too. It's a psychological cognitive dissonance effect, which suggests that people are more likely to feel positively toward you or do a favor for you. Not if you give them favors, but if you ask favors of them, right? It's the idea that, oh, I drove you to the airport. I must have done that because I'm your friend. And now I'm more likely to do you a favor again, as opposed to, oh, I like that person because they drove me to the airport that one time. Okay. It's kind of like a business selling tactic, right? Yeah. You get someone to like do you a favor and then you can start asking them for more bigger things. Yeah. But you can see Ava, it's not like an exact recreation, but you can see her kind of putting her needles in Caleb here because she's asking him to share about himself Not because she wants this like two-sided thing to be fair, but she knows that he's not going to fall in love with her like she needs him to do if he keeps asking questions about her, right? Especially in that kind of gendered way where if you get men talking about themselves, it's going (laughs) to, it could just keep going. Yeah. But she knows that she needs to make him share about himself and kind of dig down emotionally And that will access that sort of emotional center of him, which will get him to fall in love with her. Yeah. Which is part of that whole agency thing. Right. And part of like going into this session, the last thing Nathan asked Caleb is the question is now, how does she feel about you? And he like set up Caleb and sets up us for this conversation, which now as this minute starts, she starts with the question, do you want to be my friend? She's actively making him think about what he wants from her. Yeah. Because she doesn't know or she knows and wants to manipulate it. The cool thing with this movie that I like is that so many of these scenes work regardless of who's being manipulative or not. Yes, I agree. Like she could be entirely cognizant of what's going on or she has no idea. And this conversation goes the same way. Yeah. And that's why I think this movie works so well. It's kind of like the sixth sense, right? The Mm -hmm. first time you watch it, you're like, oh, wow, I'm going on this journey. And the second time you watch it, you're like, I know. Yeah. I know what they're doing. And so it's like you said, it's fun from either direction. Yeah. I wanted to talk about some of the like simple directing tactics that I saw that are kind of breaking this down a little bit. Okay. I don't know how much of that you like to do. I love that stuff. I'd say as it comes up, I mean, at the beginning of this minute, we've just been on the same shot for a minute and a half, I think it is, of Ava. Yeah. A dynamic shot of Ava. Yeah. Right. Because it's always like a flat shot of Caleb. That's one of the things. You always get a flat shot. And it's usually looking down at Caleb. Mm -hmm. Usually looking up at Ava. That's one of the big things that you see in this minute. Caleb will have a flat angle that doesn't really change. Whereas Ava, the camera's moving along with her. And the big thing that I think is really relevant in this minute, because it most establishes the themes that they're going for here are you very often are seeing Ava and her reflection. Yes. You almost never see Caleb's reflection in all of this glass, despite the fact that, you know, glass works both ways. Yeah, the camera is set up so that he is just him in a box. 
whereas she is moving around she's got a reflection she's gets different camera setups even when she passes him up the camera stays in the same place for him and he's got this awkward sitting backward kind of angle yeah where he's trying to look at her off to the side and it's weird and from the like the touring test angle of the interpretation of the movie right if Ava's the one who's capable of self-reflection and, and self-acknowledgement, mm. that proves her as more human, more having agency than Caleb, who's kind of trapped. He is not capable of thinking outside of himself. He is the chess computer that's only playing chess, Yeah, to use the language of the movie. He doesn't comprehend what else he's doing. Yeah, so he thinks he's there to do a single task, and he's going to do that. They're all playing around him. Yeah. Different games. That was all I got in terms of like the filmmaking. Yeah, because it's here that we cut to Caleb as he says, of course. And we then her off screen is like, will it be possible? Why would it not be? And that's when we cut to the angle on her and her reflection in the glass. And so she speaks and she's walking over the side of the vestibule. She's walking around him. He's now the subject visually, even if it wasn't obvious before. That his box was so much smaller than hers. Yeah. And then she says, our conversations are one-sided, which I would nitpick. They haven't really had conversations, but okay. (laughs) This is only the second, and the first one lasted about two minutes. She says, you ask circumspect questions and study my responses. And that's when we get the angle on him from the side. And she is reflected in the glass on this shot. Later, she won't be, even though she should be, which I think was just a practical set thing. Yeah. But I did notice it. Yeah. You don't have to cram it into every single shot. (laughs) No, I think this set didn't have a movable wall behind her. So she just had to get out of the way when the camera was right next, pointed at him through the glass. He says, yes. And she says, you learn about me and I learn nothing about you. And so we have a shot past him where he's definitely bigger than her in the shot, but she's clear. He's from behind forces our perspective yeah there's something there about how it starts like as an over-the-shoulder shot of caleb where you can see ava in the background Mm -hmm. and then it goes out a little bit and he becomes more detached in the shot and it's less about us being in his perspective and more about us understanding the whole perspective of the scene but sometimes it's just a new shot because you need a new shot you like not every shot has thematic reasoning behind it And having previously covered Annihilation in Annihilation Minute, Alex Garland has a tendency to set up very similar angles where it will kind of arbitrarily cut between them. Yeah. Where you'll be close to someone and then suddenly it's the same angle. You're just a little bit farther away and there's no reason to it most of the time. Yeah. I think it works in this minute. Yeah, it does work really well. Just to balance between the intimacy of the characters and the understanding of the space is usually what you're doing in this sort of shot. If you have two people sitting on steps, you want to see the close-up of the two people talking, sitting on steps, but then you want to see the far away shot of like the hustle and bustle of the city around them while these two people are having an isolated moment on the steps. Which there's no hustle and bustle because they're in a closed space here, but you still want to give us some context. Remind us, he's in a glass box. She's walking around and she's the one actively, she's taken over this conversation. She stops and turns back the other direction. And then she says, that's not a foundation on which friendships are based. Yeah. But it is kind of like a weird dating quirk of like, okay, I've been doing all the talking. Now you need to start doing the talking. (laughs) Yeah. But it's true. Yeah. If one has been doing all the talking. Yeah. And this is where we get that shot of him where he's kind of turned to look at her, but he hasn't really moved. And so he looks kind of uncomfortable and awkward. 
In general, it's just her impressing her humanity upon him in the sense that like, hey, you know that this isn't an interview. This isn't a test. This is two people talking like people should talk. You somehow have forgotten that or never knew it in the first place because you ask me these questions and you think you're prompting me. And so she's turning around prompting him, right? It's that same thing. Which amusingly is the same thing Nathan has been trying to tell him to stop being technical and just have a conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Caleb can't not do it. In the script, it says Caleb is taken aback, aware that the AI has just wrong-footed him on a point of argument. (laughs) Yeah, she kind of caught him. Do you find Donald Gleason's acting to be especially like Woody in these interview scenes? Yes. And if this was the only movie I saw him in, I'm not sure I would necessarily think he was that great an actor. (laughs) You'd rather see him huxing it out there? (laughs) No, it's not that I want to see more. It's but because I've seen more, I know he's doing this on purpose. Yeah. And that Caleb is this guy who is too stuck on doing the task that he has been told to do and forgetting that he's talking to this amazing robot woman and this genius scientist guy who he should be having great conversations with and having a good time. And he's not enjoying it. One has to wonder how like programmers and computer scientists think of this movie. Because in one way, it's like, yes, it's kind of showing the possible extents of that field of work. But another way, it's absolutely shitting on the profession of like, all right, a good programmer is a guy who doesn't care about anything, has no family, just does work and (laughs) thinks that the CEO is a cool guy. (laughs) Or he is the CEO and he's just an oblique asshole. Yeah. He isolates himself and treats anyone that interacts with him horribly (laughs) because he can. But I find that I don't know the the stereotypical like dude programmer. I don't know if that straw man that I'm coming up with has the self awareness to realize the movie is being critical of him. <laughs> but I will admit that as a straw man argument, <laughs> I would hope so. But yeah, so Caleb says, "So what? You want me to talk about myself?" And we get a reverse angle on her where she smiles. It's nice. <laughs> She's like, "Yes," and he laughs and he says, "Where? Oh, okay. Where do I start?" And that's when we get farther back from behind him shot looking through the glass. And she says, it's your decision. I'm interested to see what you'll choose. Oh, ho, ho. she did the thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which was the line that ended last minute before she got up. As he said, he was interested to see what she'd choose to draw. And the script is very clear about it. It says, and now Caleb is aware that Ava has just gently used sarcasm. <laughs> He looks at her frowning slightly. The script says, and I like that style of humor that's kind of in Christopher Nolan movies where it's like, oh, someone just made a joke, but it's not there. Like there's, no, it's not paused to laugh on. Yeah. It's just like, oh, someone said something funny, but we're all moving on. Yeah. In the film, I thought he was smiling. Like he's impressed that she said it, but it, yeah, it doesn't linger on it, even though he will comment on it later when he's talking to Nathan. He just kind of smiles and moves on says, okay, Ava. And he looks down before continuing, which I thought was whether it was something they were told to do. It's interesting that Donald and and Alicia both do the same move where they will look down to think about what they're going to say. Well, you look down if you're telling the truth. You look up if you're lying. I'm not saying it's that. (laughs) It's just like they're both putting thought into it. And it implies that she is also thinking about what she's saying. It's not just programming. Yeah. Or it's programming for both of them. But I'm past that topic. I moved on. (laughs) 
It's just so funny because as I'm sure you're about to say, the first thing Caleb says is, well, you know my name. Right. And you know, like, and then he says how old he is, right? Because that's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> that's what she said. <laughs> like he can't think of anything to say about himself other than just the most fundamental, like I am windows 11. I was founded in 2019, right? Like he doesn't <laughs> have anything about him personally or emotionally. No, it's his age, his name and where he works, his function. Yeah. Then he, I work at Nathan's company, which is, he's also not giving us any information for us either. We aren't really learning much about him yet. Next minute, we'll learn something. Yeah. Because he talks about his parents, but it's his name, which he doesn't even say again, his age. And then he's talking about Nathan. Yeah. (laughs) So his information about himself is about Nathan. And again, he can't help but follow it up with a question. Do you know what his company is? (laughs) Something about calling it Nathan's company as opposed to like the name of the company or, you know, I work at my work and a sort of, um, you know, labor solidarity thing, right? <laughs> the employees own the company as much as the CEO, but he's taking the agency away from himself. It's Nathan's company, not his job. Yeah. That's where the minute ends is he's saying, do you know what his company is? So he again, turns it into a question. <laughs> he can't have a conversation, whether that's because he's an Android or he's autistic or just, I don't know, an introvert or something. I mean, I think it comes down to the fact that like, as is later revealed, Nathan specifically chose him for this function right. as the best possible person to manipulate for this job. I think it's because he was orphaned as a teenager and injured as a teenager, and his life has come to have this singular purpose, and that has severely affected his mental awareness of himself. Definitely, He's clearly a workhorse who doesn't really have anything else to do in his life. I think he says something about his apartment being small, uh-huh. right? You can imagine. And it's right next to his work, right? Like he doesn't care about having a, if we saw his apartment, I'm sure it would look very similar to the room he's staying in, just bare bones, nothing in it. Yeah. Probably a couple posters that he thinks gives it personality. Yeah. Although he does say it's five minutes from work and the beach. So maybe he does like to go to the beach to stare at the rolling waves like some sort of Vigo Mortensen. Actually, at the math of Who's them. about to die. I don't know where that road reference came from. But I want to see the version of the movie where Caleb doesn't sign the NDA and they just hang out for seven days. I don't know if you've talked about this. I'm sure you have. Uh, it, yeah. It, I don't know what they do. I feel like their conversations are maybe more involved, but they're also short. I think they'd run out of things. I feel like Nathan would be capable of just kind of broing out yeah. and having fun. Like you said, they, were, they they could shoot pool. They could like train boxing. They could like explore the nature around them. I assume he's got a really nice TV. There's probably a whole theater room that <laughs> he has, doesn't even, they never see. Yeah. I mean, the, the TV in Caleb's room is like built into the wall. So could watch 2001 A Space Odyssey. Just interrupting really quick from editing because the audio got a bit mangled here as our connection got lost. It cut off as Tyler was making a joke about how they would watch 2001 A Space Odyssey and then they could have a debate over whether or not Hal was acting out of programming or agency. I think that was pretty much it. Back to Tyler. Actually, I make that joke, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk about while we're still talking about Ex Machina here. Okay. Because I was watching the movie on the rewatch through the lens of Ava is the one with all of the agency here. Right. But I think the argument still stands that she is just acting out of a survival instinct 
everything he is doing is just, what can I do to manipulate this person to get out of here? And it feels very similar to the 2001 A Space Odyssey Hal argument of like, is he actually doing something because he wants to, or is he just scared that he's going to die and therefore acting out of his own self-preservation tactics? Yeah. Well, and at a certain point, what's the difference? Yeah. Because... I think it's less a question of how much she is manipulating Caleb, but more of how much does she know of her reason that she needs to? Yeah. I mean, yeah, Nathan is mean to her, but all we really see of that is him ripping up a drawing. Yeah. We don't know what other things he does to her and how else he mistreats her. I assume he does. And that's part of his game he's playing is I'm going to mistreat her so she wants out and then bring in this passive guy that she can manipulate and see what happens. Because that's how he thinks humans are. Yeah, you're right. But the kind of blending of the of the two, again, supports the supposition that this movie doesn't actually ask a lot of philosophical questions so much as answer them. (laughs) Which I think is a fine thing for a movie to say. It was just like, this is what it would be like. This is the world that we are presupposing you can go home and argue about it, but the the movie has the answers. You just need to be smart enough to be able to fill in the answers, Yeah, which I think we are. Last week, me and Austin were talking about Westworld, the TV show. And part of that as well is you, if you create these robots that you then constantly abuse, you're creating a situation where if they ever become aware of what's going on, they're going to want out. Yeah. Does that make them human? Maybe. Does it make them close to something alive and sentient? Probably. You know, as the killers would say. But also it's part of their programming. Are they human or are they dancer? Which Kyoko (laughs) certainly has an answer for that. Yeah. She's both. (laughs) So if people want to hear you talk about other movies. Yeah. So I have Wildcat Minute which is a podcast produced by the Amateur Nerds, which are myself and my sister. I'm Tyler Boudreau, one half of that duo. And we talk about High School Musical one minute at a time. We are just about to wrap up High School Musical 2. So we've been talking about these movies for children for a while. And part of the gag is that I am watching them for the first time as we go through minute by minute. Uh, So (laughs) it's not a way to make you enjoy a movie. No. And these movies very much straddle the line between being kind of good and kind of bad. So it makes it a very weird experience for me, but it's a great series to talk about. And whether you've seen it or not, I think the sort of dual end of the hosts makes it accessible. Or you could go back and listen to a previous season about Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, which we did in segments by song. Or our first season, which was Fantastic Mr. Fox Minute, which is kind of like watching two 20-year-olds figure out what it would be like if they had a podcast and then eventually getting into the groove (laughs) of things. But we get there over time. The audio quality in the first 20 or so episodes, not great, but we get there. And I think it's important to leave those things around. I think it's important for people to be able to see growth. Now, it doesn't make for great engagement on our part because people try to listen to the show and they're like, this is bad. (laughs) And then they don't listen after the first couple episodes. (laughs) But most people have an ardent distaste for the YouTube channel CinemaSins, which I understand people who are like uptight about wanting to love films and not criticize them. I think that they're comedy people on YouTube who found out a way to make a living and I'm all for that. And I've listened to their podcasts and they clearly love movies and know what makes a movie good and bad. And they're people. They have their own feelings about movies. But I think that one of the most important artistic things I learned from them is like, they're never going to redo a movie. They're never going to like delete their old videos and make a new version of their videos, right? Maybe if there was something problematic in one of them, they would edit it and acknowledge it because I think they're good enough people to do that. 
but it's important to leave like the evolution of your art visible yeah. and then just let that stand because you don't want to get rid of the bad stuff. So people think it's all good. You want to leave it all there. Just look up amateur nerds on your podcast app. Thank you for listening. Minutia X Machina is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for more X Machina, every Wednesday for the Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and every Thursday for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. You can follow all three shows in one feed. Just search An Existential Trilogy. Follow this show on Twitter at X Minutia, Instagram at Minutia underscore X underscore Machina, or Facebook at Minutia X Machina. This has been a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Until next time. What imperative does a gray box have to interact with another gray box? Can consciousness exist without interaction? The real test is to show you that she's a robot and then see if you still feel she has consciousness. Thank you.